Hello and welcome to the latest episode, episode 111, 111 of the Right for Your Life podcast. My name's Ian Broom. And I'm Donna Sorensen. And this is um, uh, uh, this is going to be part three, the final part. Please make it the final part. <laughs> Please. Of uh, the publishing process, which is supposed to take one episode, and uh, we're now on episode three. But today it's going to be about what it's like once you've got a publisher. So we've talked about how you kind of approach agents. We've talked about what an agent does once you've got one and the process of trying to find a publisher. Now we're going to talk about the bits where you've actually got someone who wants to buy your book and uh, turn it into an actual thing with pages and stuff. Yeah, and at least I guess it's representative of the of the real life process are going through the process in that it's, it's really long and drawn out and... Um, Painful. <laughs> yeah, you just have to... Um, just have to wait take each step slowly slow and steady wins the race and we're going to win a race today we've all i felt i feel like we've already won a race because i i've not checked i i haven't checked and that's because i forgot kind of that they existed the comments on itunes because of course you can leave a comment about anything really on itunes but podcasts for example and lots of people encourage Lots of podcast hosts encourage their listeners to leave, um, leave, uh, you know, uh, what do you call them? Like sort of five star ratings, pleasurable, pleasured comments. You know what I mean? Um, pleasure ha- comments. Happy I love comments. pleasure comments. Okay, yeah. <laughs> pleasure comments. So leave a pleasure comment. Um, and um, and and you know, I never really did it a couple of times, but it just didn't didn't feel right. Um, but of course, listeners, you can go and leave a review of this podcast on iTunes, and it turns out some people have, and they were very kind to us. Oh, forgot to tell you about it. But it's in the US. I think it's because the way that iTunes works is that you can't see unless you do something or other. And I can't remember what I did in order to see this, but um, you can't see the reviews of people who have left a review if they're in another country. So I can't see anything that's on the US iTunes store, for example. All right. How many reviews? Oh, no, don't worry. Two. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm looking at that too. Two so, wonderful ones. Yeah, I mean, there were there, there, there was a couple on, and there was there was some more somewhere else. You know, it's all positive. And what better way to start this episode than than uh, than turning around and slapping one another on the back for a bit? Amazing. So thanks for that, uh, you kind people. And if anyone if anyone else wants to leave a comment on iTunes or say nice things about us, then that's absolutely fine. Yeah, we're well up for it. Yeah. So what have you been doing this week, Ian? Um, what have I been doing this week? I have been working hard on my the business, you know, the business that I set up two two months, six six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Left left my job, all that business. All that yep. bit that business, that business. Uh been doing that mainly. Lots of writing, lots of uh learning stuff. So I've been working for a uh, um, uh, a company who supplies educational content to schools, like curriculum content, you know, proper for primary schools, and um, and I've been copy editing and it's and and sort of proofreading and copywriting for them, and I've learned an awful lot. I mean, admittedly, at, at primary school level, but still, loads of stuff. <laughs> I oh, this is interesting. You've been learning a lot of stuff at primary school level. It's it's quite scary, isn't it? Yeah, but it's stuff I had no idea about. I mean, there's a whole section on World War One that I proofread, and I was, you know, I had to check part of my job as a proofreader was to check the references, and you know, one wiki one Wikipedia page led to another, and before you know it, I feel like an expert. Wow. Oh. So that's been good. 
a world apart from what I've been writing about this week at work. Well, we've, we've, I don't know if, um, uh, if uh, many of our listeners follow you on Twitter. They certainly should at The Flying Poets. But, of course, you were at the Eurovision Song Contest. And, um, I was. So um, Conchita won. Conchita did win. And um, what I had, <laughs> what I was going to say that I was writing about was actually Miley Cyrus kissing um, enormous inflatable appendages. Um, I think I, I know that this is not supposed to be an explicit podcast, but I, I think. Well, bon- I use the word appendage. No, well, exactly, but I think you'd have been okay with penis. <laughs> okay, I think appendage sounds dirtier, so I, I used it actually for impact, not to be good. Well, ever the writer. <laughs> but anyway, I um, yes, Miley Cyrus came to one of our um, Eurovision parties uh, in London. It was a big surprise, and it was it was all exciting, but um, but yeah, the only picture that came out of the party was of her kissing the aforementioned giant appendage. So that was uh, interesting. It's been a bit of a bizarre week, but uh, but yeah, nice to be able to do that for a living. Absolutely. Um, other things I've been doing this week. Which Hang I on, like... were you talking about you or Miley Cyrus? <laughs> what? Oh, she. I'm sure that's the yeah. Sure, she gets up to more exciting things than kissing. I'm not going to say it for a third time, but you know what I'm talking about. I think so. Yeah. Um, but another thing I've been doing this week, which is what I wanted to really say, was that I have been um, delving back into a world which I really, really love, and that is the world of Hayao Miyazaki, the Japanese um, film director of amazing animation films. Do you, are you aware of him as a person on this planet, a great person? I'm I'm aware of his work. So this is the guy who founded Studio Ghibli. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Oh yeah, I think so. I I was going to do a ridiculous attempt to do a Japanese accent, but I'm not going to. That would that would have a been a bad idea and uh, b uh, racist. Yeah, I think that would have been a and then a sub point because they're the same thing, eh? But anyway, yeah, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and the reason that I wanted to mention it on the podcast today was because um, it got me thinking a lot about influences in writing. Because um, Hayao Miyazaki is, I'm sure many of our listeners um, are not just aware of him, but have seen many of his great films, absolutely fantastic films. For example, Nausicaa, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away. Amazing films. Um, and... He's about to release, I think it's actually released now in the UK, his, his final ever film called The Wind Rises. So there's been a bit of talk about him. If, you're, if you live in London, lucky you, because there's a whole month of his films on at the British Film Institute there. Um, but anyway, listening to, um, to uh, chats about him, interviews and things like that, um, people have been discussing his influences. And what fascinated me was that I would cite Hayao Miyazaki as one of my influences in my writing. I just I'm always blown away by his his work. Um, in fact, I wrote one of the poems in my collection is about a trip I took to see the Studio Ghibli Museum just outside Tokyo. We're in a suburb of Tokyo. Um, and Hayao Miyazaki's influences. I mean, they're they're very broad, obviously, but a lot of them are really kind of overlooked British authors. And I just thought, it's so funny, isn't it, that I see somebody like Hayao Miyazaki as, as creating these really amazing worlds. And it's, 
like a real sense of otherness. But actually, they come from right where I come from. And it's just, he's managed to create them in such a way that I feel that they are from a different place. I know that sounds really weird because it's fantasy, but do you kind of get what I'm saying here? I do, and I think that um, I think you're also. Are you, are you saying that you, that it's a, it was a surprise to find that this Japanese animator was influenced by British um, what novels or just books in general or just culture? Yeah, well, like not. Well, I mean, I'm sure he's there's certain aspects of the culture he's interested in, but particular authors like. I knew that he was influenced by Diana Wynne Jones because she wrote Howl's Moving Castle. And I knew that she actually lived, she she died very recently, sadly. Um, she lived in Bristol, where I come from originally. Um, and when you see Howl's Moving Castle, I mean, you just think, oh, the way that, that Studio Ghibli have done it, obviously, is is makes it seem like it's somewhere very, very far away. But amazing to me that it actually comes from uh, the writer who wrote it, probably just down the road from where I was when I was growing up because it was written in the 80s. It's just fascinating to me that I could feel so spirited away, oh, excuse the pun, um, by, by stories that had their origins where I come from. I loved that. And to sort of twist that around slightly, I've always, um, it's, I think it's interesting as well, being influenced by things that are miles away from where you grew up. So one of my big influences... Um, I think, although I don't know how much it's shown, but it's certainly one of the th- TV shows that I, I loved and uh, when I was a kid. Um, and that's Northern Exposure. Did you used to watch Northern Exposure in the 90s? I always get Northern Exposure mixed up with um, yeah. the one about the Mountie. Uh, due South. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. The so- comedy... Canadian Mountie programme. Yeah, so what Northern Exposure, I, I I was aware of it, but I didn't watch it. But you were a big fan, were you? Well, I was, and I'm talking about when I was, like, 12 years old or something like that, and I remember I had a... I had a, a, a TV, like a portable... You know, the giant boxes that we used to... Well, not giant, actually. Sort of a small box, but extremely heavy. In my room, this TV, we had to sort of whack it to make it work. And... Um, and Because um, uh, I grew up in the 50s... <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah it was I I used to watch it it was on at half ten at night I probably should have been asleep in bed or something like that but I remember just being absolutely fascinated by it and it was just the writing was brilliant I've watched some of it back more recently and the writing is still great um, and and it was funny but weird a bit Twin Peaks-ish so I think you'd like it because lots of dream sequences and things like that because you're a fan Mm -hmm. of Twin Peaks aren't you I am indeed so it was in that kind of... There was definitely lots of... Uh, it was a bit of an, uh, an homage to Twin Peaks in places. But... And that's influenced my writing. It's because it was about a village and it was about everything. It was about a village that was cut off from lots of stuff in Alaska. And um, it was about those characters that were in that village. It wasn't like you suddenly got... You found yourself in New York and that was the setting for a while. And all characters moved around. It was like, this is the setting. This is where things take place. It was about a small town. Small town lives... The, the intricacies of that kind of thing. And that that was really influential um, with with me, I think. But uh, Alaska, uh, literally a long way from where I grew up and the kind of family I have or the kind of friends I had or the kind of school I went to, just nothing like it. But this, yeah. this kind of cultural thing, this piece of art, this work, just had this huge influence on me. So I think it's, I think, 
I think it is surprising. I think it's interesting. I think people are always interested to find out what influences their favourite writers or, or certain people, that kind of thing. I think it's, it's where naturally, when we read something, we think, well, where did that come from? Absolutely, because we want to tap into it too, the muse. But I, with, with Hayao Miyazaki, I felt when I heard about, the, you know, more about his influences, I felt like there was this big circle that had been created because he also, apparently, he did, took a trip to, uh, to Wales in the 80s and was really... Um, influenced by all the abandoned mining villages he saw sounds really bizarre but that that he used that for the film called Laputa I don't know if you've seen that about the um city in the sky have you seen that film Ian no I've only seen I've I've seen Spirited Away and I've also seen Grave of the Fireflies which was one of the most distressing things I've ever seen Oh right. Well you've got to, you've got to get on it. You've got to do a box set night of it. But anyway, the it's it's a very very atmospheric film with all of these um industrial towns in kind of canyons with railway things going through them and caves and all sorts of things. And to, you know, I saw that and I was like that is oh look that's like a far away place. It's amazing. But actually again, down the road from where I grew up. Yeah. So, yes, I always thought that I was influenced by people or things far away, Ian, but it turns out it's all closer than I thought. Well, there we go. There you go. My little tribute there to Hayao Miyazaki. So, what would you like to discuss this week? Well, I've just realised that the person who's written something that I wanted to mention is um, someone who I mentioned about two episodes ago <laughs> which shows oh. you the variety of blogs I'm reading at the moment Ah, but they must be uh, writing some good stuff Always write good stuff This is uh, Frank Camero again, he's the designer and uh, and a very good writer and it's a very short thing that he wrote on May the 3rd and the title is Two Sentences, two sentences About Getting Older and Working on the Web and I read it and thought, yes, I recognise some of that. So I was going to ask you what you thought. Um, I can probably just read the entire thing, because it's so short. Um, So he writes, GitHub, I'm about to mention the word GitHub, and for those that don't know, that is, um, it's something to do with um, programming and, and development it's uh, it's kind of a a place to like a like a social kind of programming type site. You can see I know an awful lot about it as well. Uh, Frank Camero. So this is a, Frank Camero is a very well known designer, a very good designer, and a good writer too. He says now is the time to come clean. GitHub is confusing. Git is confusinger. Pretty much everything in a modern web stack no longer makes sense to me, and no one explains it well because they assume I know some fundamental piece of information that everyone takes for granted and no one documented, almost as if it were a secret that spread around to most everyone sometime in 2012. Yet I somehow missed because, you know, life was happening to me. So I've given up on trying to understand even the parts where I try to comprehend what everyone else is working on that warrants that kind of complexity, and now I fear that this makes me irrelevant. So I nestle close to my story, that my value is my ideas and capability to make sense of things, even though I can't make sense of any of the above. But really, maybe I'm doing okay, since it's all too much to know. Let the kids have it. So <laughs> he's uh, he's basically saying 
uh, the, the story with Frank Camino is, is that he, uh, he he wrote a book called The Shape of Design, which I haven't read. I keep meaning to, but it's, it's it was one of the kind of first Kickstarter projects that really got a bit of traction and allowed him to write this uh, book called The Shape of Design. And then he kind of went off the radar for a year and he recently came back and wrote about how it was because he lost both his parents in a very short space of time. To, uh, I think it was to cancer. So this is where, where he says, I was... Um, I was um, life was happening to me. That's what he's referring to, mm. and it's the idea that things on the internet, in every sort of sense, uh, they come and go so quickly, and more and more people are what they call digital natives. I guess these are not expressions that Frank Camero uses here in this article, but it's the idea that there are now people growing up and people in their twenties, for example, where having a smartphone or having a computer of any kind is just entirely normal. And so perhaps these kinds of tools, GitHub in this instance, but maybe it's just something like Twitter that more you know, there's lots of people use, or even Facebook. That there is, if you don't keep up, if you're not aware of uh, um, of what's going on all the time, then you can very quickly get left behind. And then, kind of, what do you do? And the reason that I found this interesting is because I've been thinking a lot recently about my kind of. Um, and when I say recently, I mean for the last two years, anyone that's been following me over the last two years, listening to this podcast or maybe even my blog and that kind of thing will know that I've, you know, life's been happening to me too. We've had the twins, there was uh, the changes in jobs and all that kind of thing. We've talked about this before, but it, at the same time, I've been doing my best to kind of keep up with everything, bearing in mind that also that I've been working, you know, for a living. My job has been to do with communications and keeping up with what's, you know, online trends and what are people using to do what and all that kind of thing but i find myself more and more just uh trying to wonder where what my position is in all of this do i you know do i really need to know what the latest social network is whether it catches on or not um is that and and ultimately is that going to help me sell more books do i need to be on these things because i'm an author do i need to be on these things because I, i record a podcast every week and it's important to know and how often do I do I do I really need to keep my blog going all the time? Is is you know does it really does it really matter? And then this is where the key sentence from. And so I've been thinking about these things. And then it's this sentence here that I'll repeat again. Um, I've given up on trying to understand even the parts where I try to comprehend what everyone else is working on that warrants that kind of complexity. And now I fear that this makes me irrelevant. So I, this is it. So I nestle close to my story that my value is my ideas and capability to make sense of things even though i can't make sense of any of the bub uh, any of the above but really maybe i'm doing okay since it's all too much to know so i think it's just a, a little self-reflection i think this is just an interesting concept in general but in terms of making it all about me which of course is something i'd like to do as often as possible <laughs> it's made me you know really think you know what is what value am i getting what is and what value do i offer what is and I think this goes back to something I talked about last year on the podcast about getting so sick of all these blog posts that are 10 fantastic, super blasting, awesome ways to write a sentence, you know, all those kinds. They just, the internet's littered with them. And I think yeah. even then I was thinking about, is that what I want to do? Is that the kind of value that I can give? Is it, is it, you know, is that, is that, is that what I should be doing? Um, so, so it's the, the the key the key phrase. So I nestle close to my story. I thought that's just yeah. a beautiful collection of words. Yeah, it is. And um, and of course, we all can choose what stories we want to tell about ourselves. We can choose what our story is. You don't have to do whatever you don't want to do generally in life. Yeah, 
absolutely. Um, I think that's interesting what he was saying about the fact that if you, you know, it's almost like you're picked up and you're crowd surfing at a concert and you're carried along. But if you if you just stop for a minute, then, you know, everything's gone already in terms of the way, the pace of developments in this day and age. I was trying to think back to when my parents were, were my age and when new things happened, if they knew about them or if they could say to their friends or family, whatever, here, have you seen this? This newfangled thing, this fax machine or whatever... It, you know, I mean, things presumably just came around like once or twice a year, if that, new developments. If you think about it, today, there, there are just like hundreds and thousands of new apps and new programs every bloody week to keep up with. And yes, you can wait to see if something, you know, starts to get big and then you can get interested in it or you can be the first person on it. But I don't think this is a question of age. I mean, even... The kids today, they've got a lot to keep up with as well. They must be thinking the same thing, surely. You know, like teenagers now that have to be online constantly, they must be exhausted too, don't you think? Maybe. I don't think we'll ever know. We could do with getting a teenager to ask. I was just thinking, actually, do I know? I do. No. Do I really not know any teenagers at the moment? Oh, my goodness. Donna, are you. Is this, was that the sound of you realising how old you were? Yes. <laughs> it was the sound of my brain clinking. Yeah. No, I don't know any teenagers. But I, anyway, I think the point is still valid that they, they are all knackered. Everybody's knackered. And you've just got to do the best you can to keep up with it all. And it, just because you're old doesn't mean that, that it's more difficult for you to keep up with new trends online. Well, I mean, you say that, but it, it sort of does a little bit because, you know, for most people, the older you get, the more responsibilities you get in one way or another and the less time you genuinely have to give a monkeys about what's going on on on, yeah. on snap flap. <laughs> snap flaps. Yeah, well, but based on your thinking there, Ian, then, you know, the retired generation right now should be absolutely, you know experts on this stuff because they got nothing to do except sit around playing golf and um, keeping up to date on latest trends on social media <laughs> well on, on, and on that offensive note we should probably move on to the next one offensive note i was saying they, they could lead us into the future the retired generation show us well no that's not what you said you didn't say the you didn't say the older generation could lead us into the future. You said... <laughs> Beacons they, you said, of insight. I said they're lying around doing nothing. They're totally not, though. That's what, that's what old people used to do. I saw a great picture recently of, of retired people sitting on a bench watching young people. It was absolutely fascinating. It was a black and white picture. And, I mean, those people must have been, like, in their late 50s. <laughs> and just, you know, that's not what happens these days. You're still going until you're, you know... Well, life just keeps going on. <laughs> Doesn't it just? Yeah. Should we talk about the publishing process? Yes. And how long, look, before, you, before we go into this, how many of your points on the original list of the publishing process do we still have to get through? Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, that's not true. It's the six. Six. But I kind of make them up as I go along as well. So I add, I add more points as I'm going along. And I know that, you know, you've been through this process with the publisher as well in a very, in a, in a very 
different way in some ways because mm. you're 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 a, a poet, don't you know it? So you know it's, this could go on forever. Let's do it. Let's let's get cracking on on part three of the publishing process. Okay, so where are we at? So you've got an agent, and the agent has been brilliant, and all these different things that an agent is supposed to do, and you you get the call. You get the call from your agent, and they say this a publisher wants to buy your book. If you're especially lucky, then they will ring you and they'll say more than one publisher wants to buy your book. And they are going to fight with with gloves and fish at dawn until they get your signature, although primarily with money. Amazing. Going to throw money in your face. That's lush. Um, and then you will you will kind of have a sit down for a while and get excited and then get back up, ring your agent back and you will start talking about whether it's the right thing to do or not. So this is a, uh, um, a perhaps a surprise that you might have to think about whether it's the right thing to do because this is a childhood dream that you're about to fulfil. You've been offered a publishing deal but the whole point of having an agent in many ways is to have a kind of objective, rational way of looking at things and discuss with you whether you really, uh, whether this is the right deal, how to do it, what have you. And ultimately they will negotiate the deal and they will negotiate things like rights. So we talked about that last week. So there will be a contract the, um, the 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 publisher will typically offer an advance, so that's how it kind of works in terms of you getting some money as a writer. You will get paid an advance, which is a sum of money, and that will just be yours, although your agent will take the percentage, excuse me, of course. Windy Pops, again, it's always around the same time. God! So sorry. I'm so, so sorry. Cannot believe... That. Oh, yeah. Um, oh! <laughs> and, and, and so... Your agent will, um, uh, you, you get your advance and then the way that uh, it works is that you need to sell the equivalent amount of money um, in books before your your publisher then will start paying you royalties. So that's how that works. But your agent will negotiate that. They'll negotiate how much your advance is and they will look at the rights that are in your contract and say, well, we think we should get more of a percentage for audiobook rights or we think that we should get more for international rights and on and on. And so that's really key. So when uh, uh, we talk about what do agents do, I mean, I'd, unless you're some kind of lawyer you know, that's a, particularly an expert in publishing, then you need, you're need you not going to know the ins and outs of that type of thing. Whereas an agent, it's their job, it's their bread and butter, and they can help negotiate the best possible deal. So, And may I ask at this stage, the, the, the foreign rights aspect, mm-hmm. is that not like a massive part of it? Yeah, it's all a big part of it because uh, foreign rights. If you're able to sell you, the you rights to your to your book um, in other countries, then that often, I believe, is what makes you decent money. That's where you know that's that the book is. If it's all over the place, then the more money you're likely to make. So that's fantastic if you can manage to do that. Yeah. Are you going to ask me if I've done that? No. Good. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not all about you, Ian. No, but when I when I worked in a publishing company, obviously the rights. I mean, it was amazing that that every book that was um, proposed, it was all about what about the foreign rights potential? What about the foreign rights potential? Because in terms of making money, if if you don't have that, then you know, forget it. Yes. Well, thank you for reminding me of that. Why? Well, I don't. I don't have any foreign rights. <laughs> oh yeah. So but- I forgot it. 
What you didn't have any in your contract? I had them in my contract, but my book hasn't been sold to any other countries. Not oh, yet. Right. Not, not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Doesn't doesn't happen at the same time. No, you know, I'm a working writer. These things happen. Anyway, so you've negotiated a deal, then you will go through a process with an editor. So you will then uh, work with the editor to make the book blooming better. And um, and and the, the editor, your editor, when you get with a publisher, that you the way it should work is that you become really uh close to them in terms of the book you know you become like you you're there they're there to champion your work much like your agent is when they're trying to sell your book once the book is in the editor's hands they need to absolutely love it and they need to be as passionate about it passionate about it as you are if not more so and um, their job is to work on the structure of your novel the making sure it's spelt words are spelt correctly you know they're, they're, they're there to edit your book and to improve it and to make it as good as it can possibly be before it goes on to the grubby mitts of the consumer or yeah. reader as we should probably call them um so you and you, how much dialogue did you have with your editor well i had well plenty i mean it was a very it was a, a to and fro process you go through a number of of uh of, of rounds so you will kind of There'll be the bit where you try to get a finished manuscript and then you might have to have it back and write the acknowledgements if you want to write some. And then you have to proofread it at least once or twice yourself as well as it being proofread by um, a professional proofreader elsewhere. Um, and and so there's lots of toing and froing with the publishing company and with uh, your editor particularly to get the book finished, to get it right. Um and um, and yeah, they should. They you know, it's their job to champion your work and to uh, really want it to be like that. So this is another. I keep dropping these kind of criticisms in because I think they're important to kind of present an alternative view of things. Because quite often people will wonder, well, why do you need a publisher in this day and age when you can do it yourself and put it on on Amazon or, or whatever it might be? And um, and that sort of working with direct with directly with an editor to make your work as good as it can possibly possibly be is really important and self-publishers the best um uh, the best ones always give the advice that work with you know pay an editor of some kind to edit your work even before you self-publish it so it's a really important part of the writing process vital um you will pick a launch date you probably won't almost certainly the author won't but i guess there will be some you'll be you'll be spoken to about it i imagine um, they will say we plan to publish your book on this particular date, which is very exciting. You finally get that date, um, and uh, and yeah, and there's just this constant uh, backwards and forwards. Now that here comes an issue that I think that um, we've talked about before, but I think it's fair point to talk about it again, and that's cover design because we've had very different experiences. I I got very fortunately I got to more or less choose. Uh, my cover. I didn't get to choose my design as such, but I got to work with a friend of mine who's a well-known artist in my city, Sheffield, and uh, he worked on. You know, he did the cover for the book, which I absolutely love. And my publisher, Legend, were happy for him to do that because they could see that it was great. And um, and and so I had you know huge input in my book cover. Most people don't. It's usually there's usually an in-house team of. Um, a design team if it's a particularly big publisher or if it's a smaller independent publisher then they will probably employ uh, freelancers or uh, a company of some sort to do that kind of design work um, for them um, 
but I didn't. I was lucky. I think it was uh, not particularly a typical way of doing things. What was your experience with book covers? Um, I had a say in my book cover, but I was not able to to design it or choose it. But I definitely had a say in terms of the direction. Um, and uh, and yeah, so there was there was a dialogue about it. I was presented book covers and, and we discussed them, and then like we went on to a second round of, of options. And uh, and yeah, and that what, was it. What was your um, what was your what was your level of input? So was it just a case of saying yes or no, or how many options did you get? Was it like a case of here's one and here's another one? Which one do you like or? Um, they, I was sent five to start with, and um, I remember, I, I remember so clearly getting that email and being like, "Oh, goody!" and opening it up, and then like scrolling down, and um, yeah, and out of those first five, there were there were none of them that were just that I loved at all. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it, but anyway. Um, so I, I was able to feedback on those and and say the particular reasons why I didn't feel that they representative of the collection. And then they looked at it again and they came with a new angle based on what the input that I'd given. But ultimately, they entirely chose it and they designed it. Um, after that that first bit of input, we didn't go backwards and forwards anymore. That was it. Interesting use of the word "loved" there, though. You said that you didn't love any of them. Did you expect when you had no input? Did you expect, I was being nice, Ian. And no, but did you expect to love any of them, or do you think that your expectations were a little bit high? No, my my expectations were not high. Oh, no, I, I, honestly, I, no, I I agree with you. I just wondered because you know it, you typically will want to love every single part of our book. I think I, yeah. I think if I remember rightly, I asked for my typeface to be changed. Yeah, um, and was it? No, it was there was a, it was a relatively firm no. Um, and the reason I did too did you and, and it was a no as well <laughs> I think that was actually just a sizing issue yeah it was me but too yeah. I, I said I don't like I personally don't like to read books with small copy and I wondered if you consider making the font a bit larger but the reason that, that uh, I was oh, I thought you meant on the cover sorry yeah no sorry I meant for the entire book like literally the typeface of the <laughs> entire book <laughs> yeah okay um, no, the reason was that it was house style, so that might be something that you come up against as well if, when you go through the publishing process, is there might be some things that are just house style. I mean, imagine, I, I happen to love the way that Faber designed their books, because they all look very, very similar, and they're very, especially it's poetry, isn't it, particularly, is that right? Is it Faber? And- so, yeah, amazing poetry. Yeah, so and and the design of each book is really similar, it's just kind of just the colours change, more or less. Very simple designs. Um um, but imagine if you'd had, you decided, if you really, really dreamt that you wanted, like, a gorilla on the front or something like that. And you <laughs> couldn't because it was house style. And that's kind of, that was kind of the answer I got with the with the typeface in the book. It was, like, well, our house style is this and all our other books are like this. So we can't really make an exception. And, you know, that's that really is fair enough. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you're going to be part of a bigger brand when you've got a book with a publishing company. And exactly, and ultimately, you do have to. There is a, a certain level of give and take, and I think that's probably the case when you're actually editing the book as well. There might be some suggestions that you want to um, uh, completely oppose, and you just go, "I'm sorry, no, that is not. I'm not changing that part of my book." 
and you you will eventually discuss and come to a kind of decision. And there might be other stuff that you just go, yeah, that's absolutely fine, I don't mind that. You kind of have to pick your battles makes it sound like it's much more kind of difficult than than it really was for me but there is definitely we should say this is at the start of of your your career because i remember having a chat with a um a very um well-known poet in ireland called john f dean he's been the the editor of poetry island review as well many times over and i remember him saying to me that when he sends off a poetry manuscript to his publisher um he actually quite misses the fact that there is no there's nobody dares to, to edit it or to comment or to say, have you thought about changing this? I mean, presumably, you know, it's it's new editors or young editors. And, and you know, he's been doing this for what, like 50 years or whatever with like loads of collections out. I thought that was a very interesting take on it. Well, there are lots of authors that, that, that whose careers kind of tail off. And maybe part of the reason is because they become big and famous and no one challenges them as much as perhaps they would have done when they were younger and less experienced yeah could well be good theory <laughs> you're so full of yourself today aren't you well it was your, that theory. Was your theory no it was your theory <laughs> i insist it was your theory <laughs> um so um so that and and i i mean i've actually covered all my notes i think that was that's really more, what all six points yeah i kind of realized that they're all the same <laughs> <laughs> well that's really good um yeah well and, and i'm trying to think if i've really i mean oh, no, not, hang on we the, the, have you we talked about the actual if you're going to have a launch because not every book has a physical book launch that's another thing we should say isn't it no, and the, and the whole, I mean, that is an entire episode in itself, potentially. Let's just carry on to the next week. But the the the, the launch itself is, um, yeah, a, a, an amazing experience. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily advise everyone to have identical twins three weeks later, but mm-hmm. uh, it's a really, it's, it's you know, it's something that you will discuss and, and hopefully and, and um, kind of work out with your publisher. But it may be that you end up doing a lot of the promotional marketing work yourself it entirely depends on your publisher i think and what sort of marketing budget they have um, and that's going to be one once you're published that's absolutely going to be your biggest challenge how how much time and money can your publisher give you to support the book and try and make it a success and of course this is why lots of people have online platforms to um, to try and help them sell books and all that kind of thing um and you know it's a challenge it's a real it's a real challenge to try and get people to um to buy your book and um yeah so that's and that's all part of uh, being published i guess and um back when i was doing publicity for a publishing company uh, it was amazing how i mean back at the publishing company i worked at we had you know i can't remember whether it was four seasons of books where they came out four times a year we had every week we had a new book coming out um, so you had in that year, these were your authors for that year. So everything, you know, about in terms of packaging the books up, taking them out to fairs, getting them through the printers and everything, it was one year at a time. So you felt like, okay, this is this batch of new authors. So it's amazing to imagine that, you know, after a year, you're no longer a new author for a publishing company. And and actually, in, in reality, like, you know, a couple of weeks later, you're not a new author for your publishing company. So in terms of the the, the focus that you get and the time that you get to, to uh to get in there and and to to push your book it's actually quite small obviously they will still help you afterwards but you also have to remember that they've got new authors coming in you know and part of the problem is that they need something to promote i suppose they do have new 
uh, there are, it's the, a publishing company is a company and um, it's quite difficult to constantly promote the same thing so for example i know that some people do do this but i don't know how they can find it within themselves but you know some people might i don't but you know what would happen if we constantly every day saying buy my book you just can't do that um, and a publisher can't do that either because it just looks silly mm. um, so they have a constant flow of, of of new authors new books and that makes sense and it means that obviously they make you know, all being well make money from that author and from that book and then on to the next one and and because they're on to the next book and the next author they've they've that's who they're talking about and that's kind of an inevitable process. And you're kind of left there um, as, as an author um, fending for yourself for more or less the rest of time, which is why it helps to try and try and do events and to try and do um, um, try and hopefully do well in certain competitions or whatever it might be, writing blog, interesting blog posts, having a podcast perhaps, but just other things that your publisher can latch onto to help promote you as an author, which will hopefully ultimately help promote the book as well. And the most important thing you should be doing? Well, writing the second book, or the third book, yeah. or the fourth book. Writing the next world's best book ever. Indeed. Yes. For people to, to fight over you and bid for you on. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so we've, that's where the time's getting on again. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it there. But there's been lots of things that we've missed. We can, uh, we can answer questions. Um, so if people want to ask questions about anything that we've said over the last three episodes or to ask about a particular part of the process that we've no doubt not talked about, um, then do get in touch. Um, either on Twitter at Ian Broom or at the Flying Poets, or you can just get in touch. Uh, there are there are details on the Five by Five website, and there are, there'll be uh, show notes from this episode. Um, and you can see on the right hand column that uh, there are ways of getting in touch. So, um, do you know where the show notes for this particular episode would be? Me. Yep. Five by Five One One One. That's more or less right. But a bit clearer, 5x5.tv slash... Oh, I said .tv, I always forget. 5x5.tv slash 111. No, that's still no, not sorry, right. No, I, I, no, I've got it now. 5x5.tv slash WFYL111. No, still not quite. <laughs> you missed out the second slash. Oh, after the WFYL slash 111. Yes. Right. Just to sum up, it is 5x5.tv slash WFYL slash 111. Discotech. Yes. So, yeah, do get in touch um, and uh, ask us any questions about the publishing process and we will either talk about them um, on the show or they can be a listener's question at the end of uh, an episode or we could even just email you a response if we have the time. Uh, to if you know if the question is if we're able to respond to the question fairly concisely um so yeah well we've mentioned this so should we hear the jingle talking of listeners question um we we do have one we had a lovely email claudia claudia indeed i don't think we had a surname actually thinking about it and uh perhaps we 
uh, perhaps we probably look. shouldn't, uh, shouldn't announce it anyway. Oh, maybe in the, the email Ooh. address. But I won't read that out. Yeah. Claudia. Uh, uh, Claudia, Claudia says, from Amsterdam. Claudia from Amsterdam says, um, um, she says, first of all, glad you're back. I missed the podcast. That's very kind. Um, oh, thanks, she also says, by the way, keep up on the amazing jingle. Oh, Claudia. Thanks. Well, do, I've, I've, I've perfected it this week, I feel. You did very it had well. It's been getting worse and worse, but I've got it. I've nailed it now. There was one week where you kind of went, uh, listener's question. <laughs> Oh, it must have been a hard work week. Indeed. Claudia says, what's your opinion on translating? Do you consider translators to be writers as well? Well, I happen to personally be in awe of translators. I'm not sure whether I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but um, having attempted to translate one of my own poems to Danish, I just thought, oh, my God. People who are able to do serious poetry translations just they astound me hats off amazing so you're let's let's get this let's explore this further you are fluent in danish i am yep and um maybe you could share a little danish for us now just to prove it better yes you see today well there you go see really good i presume i i just said what do you want me to say um but uh but yes but you know, if you take my poetry, like when I, when, if I've, a lot of the times when I've said something, I'm actually obviously thinking of something else, if you know what I mean. And I, all of those multi-layered meanings in Danish, I just, I, I don't feel I can nail them, you know? Well, what's, um, the Danish is an unusual, not a particularly unusual language, but it's an interesting language because they, is it, here's, here's a, something that's not true. They have a third less words or some, something like that. Is that right? Everything's, yeah, they, they, they just simplify everything. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's quite hilarious. Like they, they just say what they see. So the word for a rhinoceros, for example, is a nose horn. <laughs> just literally called a nose horn which i quite like actually um <laughs> and um yeah it, it is very kind of um say what you see so and what, sometimes that's really good sometimes i find it extremely limiting but then i'm not a master I, even though i'm fluent at danish in the same way with you know i'm always learning new english words there's so much danish that i don't know so i do have to be careful to say that it's very restrictive i just at the stage i'm at I'm not obviously expressing myself properly in poetry in the way I would like to. But I would like to translate. I, I, I think I will give it a serious go to take one of my poems and, and see if I can translate it. Because, you know, what, what, what is it that makes somebody able to translate a poem? They have, to, they have to understand all of the meaning of the poem. And they have to be really good with words in both languages. But is there something else that a translator needs? I'm wondering. I mean, I've got I've got no idea. This is this is uh, quite a, a distance from my realm of uh, knowledge. But I mean, where would the world be? So the question, the second part of the question is: Do you consider translators to be writers as well? I mean, uh, of course they are. I imagine that you would have to be an extremely skilled writer in order to be a good translator. I mean, think of someone like um, Murakami, whose novels are. But I think this is true. His novels are 
written in the, the Japanese novels, aren't they? They're not English、mm-hmm. novels. And his translated versions of them are huge bestsellers all over the world. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean they're good, but what would we have done without those? That translator to, to the idea that that translator isn't in some way writing when they're looking at the original text in Japanese and turning it into English or whatever the language may be is insane. And if you think about all the, the great texts that were not written, you know, half of our blooming syllabus is the,、uh, you know, the national curriculum. The origins of a lot of、um, uh, these texts are, are, are not in English. So I don't know. Well, But do you know what this has just made me want to do? I've just realised, you know, a lot of my favourite books of all time were not written in English. And I would not be able to, to name the person that had made it possible for me to read those books. And so I just thought I'd check up 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, is one of my favourite books. Gregory Rabassa's translation is the only English version of the novel. And who's、so、heard Gregory, of him? Exactly. But now I know. And that's because Claudia asked us about it. And even though translators are writers, they are, well, unsung heroes, eh? I think so. I mean, I don't know an awful lot about it, but I, it just seems to me like a, just an incredibly skilled job.、Um, yeah. And,、uh, and yeah, I just, and absolutely writers, in my opinion. Because you have to, I mean, there, a, there has to be, I, I imagine, and you've tried this with, you say, with a,、uh, some poetry, but there has to be. An element of creativity involved. Surely you're choosing between. If you, if you say in, if in Danish it says it was hot outside, surely、uh, um, in, if you're translating that, you perhaps may. I mean, this is a very probably a terrible example, but you have to choose whether the English version is hot or is it warm or is it humid. You know, you, there's an element of creativity because words have lots of meanings. Words can be vague. Language is in itself a fairly fluid. Thing that can be molded and interpreted in lots of different ways. So that's a, tran- that's a translator's job. It is absolutely, but I, I think it's the, the double meaning when you've written a word and it has an explicit meaning and an implicit meaning behind it. That's, that's what I find very difficult because you can't be sure unless you have a really kind of really deep context. See, I haven't, I've only been able to speak Danish for five years. That's another thing I should say. I think it's, it's, it's also about experience in the language, you know?、Mm. But yeah, well, that was, that was very interesting. Thanks, thanks, Claudia. Good question. And、Excellent、thanks to、question. all translators out there bringing fiction to our eyes. Indeed. Claudia herself is a translator, she says. So we should probably, all of, that, all of those nice words were aimed directly at her. Yeah, absolutely. That's、um, a nice way to end this week, eh? Indeed. So, yeah, any more listeners' questions, do send them to us. You can do that by、uh, email or by Twitter. You can find me at Ian Broom on Twitter. I mentioned that before. I A I N B R O O M E, or the blog, Ian, sorry, or the website, ianbroom.com. And Donna, they can find you at. At The Flying Poet on Twitter. That's fine. You can just find me there for now. That's where I'm hanging out most these days. Cool. And、um, I think that's it. Until next time. Lovely. See you all. Thanks for listening.